0: Hello and welcome to the RTE Brainstorm podcast, a home for new ideas and insights on Ireland and the world. It's a unique partnership between RTE and the Irish third level institutions. Now, enjoy the show. Hello, well here's a quick question for you. Have you ever given a child a present but they end up spending all their time playing with the wrapping paper and the box instead of what's inside? It's a bit of a killer, isn't it? But what they're doing is hardwired into them from the moment that they're born and that is play. And when it comes to play, the research shows that it's not the toys they need but the tools, like little bits of paper and cardboard, that can fire their imagination. Well with me are two researchers who are on a mission to pursue Persuade us all that the way to mental and physical health in kids and teenagers can be found in play. Christina Duff from Dublin City University and David Goal from Technological University in Dublin. You're very welcome. Uh, Christina, you said to me earlier that your childhood was marked by getting kicked out of the house until the streetlights went on, which is a nice image. What's your earliest memory of play?
1: Um, I'd say my earliest memory of play is I I was very much a doll person. <laughs> um, I had a doll as a child called Barbara who was basically like a member of our family and I was fully convinced that I was her mother and she was my actual baby. And we have home videos which are cringeworthy now to watch but I'm talking about how when we go shopping if she's very good I'll let her buy sweets and I'll do this and I'll do that. Um, and it really like looking back now it is exactly why children play with dolls. It's, it's making sense of this relationship that they see with their own mothers and their own carers um, and kind of trying to, to make sense of that um, And then I guess when I was a little bit older I was very much a um, out on the streets playing. I was lucky enough that I did live in a neighborhood that had other children and that we had a certain amount of freedom. I mean I don't think the same neighborhood now you could play in with the amount of traffic um, but we would just kind of roam the streets. We used to joke that we were loitering and adults would say well that's a bad thing. we go well it seems like a great thing really uh, good fun yeah, exactly. <laughs> And we'd just kind of make up our own games. I mean, you know, we would we would play in the church grounds, we'd play on the streets, we'd play with balls, we'd chase each other around and we'd just kind of hang out with each other and it was great. We'd faff about. Faff about. Faff Absolutely. about. David,
0: you grew up on a farm yeah. in Swords, yeah. uh, presumably a very uh, wonderful place to grow up as a as a young five-year-old. What's your earliest play memory?
2: Yeah, I'm a Dublin farmer, so you wouldn't have many of them. Um yeah, I remember I suppose we had a little we had a farm, dairy farm, my dad was a farmer, and my mum was a self employed accountant. So we kind of had a, a lot of area, a lot of space to play in and we had a little small orchard. We used to call it the orchard and used to seem amazingly big to us, but I'd say it was only about eight to ten trees. And uh, one my main memories are around the one the one particular tree that was our base, our den, our castle, our fort. It was Prison, jail, whatever, hideaway. It was that centre of the game. And
0: whatever was in your head. Yeah, it was, whatever basically. game we were playing,
2: that yeah. was that was it. And, uh, you know, when you you were first using it as base or den and chasing, but then as you, I suppose, got a little bit older or braver, uh, it became uh, a mountain which you would scale. And, you know, depending on the late age of seniority in the family, my older brother was always on the, the higher bows and I was slightly higher up and my younger brother was slightly below. And we were constantly... I suppose, pushing ourselves to kind of find different ways to climb, hang, swing out of the tree.
0: And during that time, were your parents around? Um, No, not really.
2: Um, They were there. My mum was in the house and she was around when checking on us. But we were left, I suppose, to our devices. My dad worked quite a lot of hours. You know, he would come back in the evenings after milking the cows back across the fields. And, you know, he wouldn't have to look far to find us because we'd probably be hanging out of some tree or climbing over some fence.
0: I suppose it's really important here to sort of define, Christina, what we mean when we talk about play. I mean, you've said it's play is like love. It's a very hard thing to define, but you know it when you see it.
1: Yeah, and that's something that... we kind of talk about in play, it is so hard to define because it means different things to different people. So some of the different definitions, I mean, Peter Gray is one of the sort of eminent researchers around play and he talks about different characteristics that sort of... um, define play. So one of them being that it's um, sort of self-directed, that it's not necessarily somebody else telling you that you have to do it. Um, Another is that uh, it's the means, not the ends. So it's not what comes out of it. You're not doing it to achieve a certain thing. It's the joy of doing it. It's the process of it itself. Um, Also that you're free to quit. So you're not being coerced into it. It's not a case of I have to play or somebody's going to be mad at me. It's you are able to stop at any time that you want. Um, And that uh, there's no real fear of failure in it. There's no right or wrong. It is about exploration and it is about trying out different things. And there's no fear of doing it in the wrong way or not. You can't not achieve play, you can't fail at play. I mean, the only way to really know if, if... There's no way objectively to say if something is or isn't play. So other people say that play is... It's not an activity itself, it's an approach to an activity.
0: Uh, and David, it seems from everything that Christina says, I mean, it, it's fundamentally child-led, that there aren't adults hovering around anywhere, mm-hmm. that it is the child in control, that it is the child directing. Yeah.
2: Um, I suppose as adults and as parents, we, I suppose know the importance of physical activity for our children and we think that if we send our children to practice be it basketball soccer football that they are playing that that's their play time they go with their friends and they play in a sport that they like or a game that they like but that is very coach led it's adult led the adult is telling the children what to do so sport isn't necessarily yes children have fun and they play when they're engaging in these sporting activities but it's not pure play it's not child-led whereas you know we're all too familiar with with children kind of I suppose going off on a a little tangent and going on and playing with their friends and not doing what they're told but they kind of get into their own little world and And do you need things to, to play I mean I'm thinking about all the toys
0: and all the kind of exercise equipment I mean do you need any of that
2: I suppose you don't you don't necessarily need it. You can find it in anything. So if you leave a child with a stick and uh, an empty bottle of water, they will find a game for them to implement. So they don't have to have the, the latest Buzz Lightyear or Woody Action Figure or you know, Paw Patrol or whatever the game is. They don't need the toy necessarily. Now toys can, they can play with toys and they make, I suppose they enrich the play that they can have, but children can play find play in anything And presumably Christina the drive to play in children
0: is extremely strong I mean we've all seen those photographs from war zones Syria Iran the Second World War of kids on the street playing between soldiers playing with rubble You know, it's a sort of an innate, strong instinct, isn't it, for them to play?
1: Absolutely, yeah. And especially in, I mean, people have observed that in times of crisis, it's when you need to play more than ever because there is a therapeutic aspect to play of helping to understand the world and helping to kind of deal with big emotions and things that we can't understand. and it is, I mean, it's not just the the physical environment but it's the it's the kind of, the, the social environment as well. So we talked about um, toys and kind of the things that children play with but a lot of the time we have to think about what sort of permission do they have to play? Because as David mentioned, there might be trees and there might be hedges and there might be things to climb but a lot of the times it's going to be the adults who are saying well you can't climb that, that's dangerous, you're going to get hurt, we're going to get sued, you can't do that. Um, and that's a massive obstacle to play. And David, is,
0: is, is it a case that the play is a must- that needs to be regularly flexed and used and that if you don't allow your children to have that space and child-led kind of experience when they get older they just don't know what to do they don't know how to play
2: Yeah, yeah definitely I think that they need to I suppose practice and to be I suppose Given the freedom to experience it, because if we if we constrain our children and how they play and what they play with and how they, they become very I suppose bound by these rules, so then when they get the freedom, they you give them Lego blocks and you tell them, okay, you know, there's some Lego, there's some toys, play. I suppose children who will be quite frequently asked, what what do you want me to make, you know, and when you say to them. Like it's a performance. Almost. Yes, they, they have a, There's an end. It's an end point that they want to achieve to make you happy because they're they're looking because it's led by adults. We, they're being constrained by what you set you want them to build or what you want them to make. And if they do not get that experience when they're younger about being able to build whatever they want, make whatever they want, and it doesn't have to look like a real airplane, it can look. It, it doesn't have to obey the law of aeronautics. Like it doesn't have to fly. It's about building and playing. It's not about building the real thing. They and need-
0: is there a, is there a current thinking about what the evolutionary reason for play is? I mean, why has it evolved?
2: Well, I suppose I think, as Christina touched on, it's 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 and yourself, it's very innate in people. It's in animals too. We see. Um, Lion cubs, for example, playing with each other, you know, simulating what they're going to do. You don't see the lioness come in and separate them and say, someone's going to get hurt here. They, <laughs> they, they do that themselves. It's ingrained in them. And if we look at war torn areas, kids play and they find that, I suppose, that safe space, that, that, that space to enjoy or to experiment or problem solve. And, and they they to they work fun. out
0: this mad world. Yeah, to make sense publishing. of
2: all the information that they have gained.
0: And, and, you know, I suppose we can talk about what play is. What happens, uh, you know, in terms of when play isn't there? What is the opposite of play, Christina?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people say that the opposite of play isn't work, it's depression. And it really, I mean, as David said there... um, that there is this evolutionary reason that we play and it is to try and make sense of the world around us. Um, it is to try and uh, learn to kind of cope with with quite complex things um, and it has been kind of, uh, it has been documented in research that a lot of um, people who kind of have uh, maybe go on to commit to make, commit crimes or violent crimes and things like that that a lot of them wouldn't have played a lot in their childhood and that um, because of that didn't really have that socialisation, didn't really learn how to get along with other people and didn't really learn how to obey rules of society and became quite embittered. In. Now I know that's quite a it sounds like a, a little bit of a stretch. That's not necessarily saying that everybody <laughs> everybody who doesn't play goes on to do bad things. But there is research, especially in America now, they've done these, um, they do these questionnaires every year, every couple of years over decades around well-being and things like that. Um, and they're seeing that not only are chil- is children's well-being decreasing, but that they're seeing way increasing levels of narcissism and decreased empathy. And they're kind of putting that down to a lack of, not necessarily just lack of play, but lack of this kind of interaction with other people and understanding. Understanding that, um, that you're not the only person who matters and that you need to make meaningful connections with people and that maybe you need to meet somewhere in the middle. Like you learn to negotiate through play.
0: Well, we have a bit of archive from 41 years ago. Pat Inglesby went in search of street games and songs played by kids in Dublin City. Have a listen to this.
2: Everybody goes around the circle and for the person that's on runs in and out through the people and starts singing, I've got a cow girl and everything. And then the people start clapping then when, when she stops somebody when the song's over, she stops somebody and they start wiggling and going with their hands up and down and everything. That's the way the game goes. And then the person who she who she's put, does that to is on then. Sick like of your up to The Sounds of
0: Kids playing back in 1977. And it's interesting, I've been reading this book by this woman called Iona Opie and she spent years and years with her husband going around playgrounds and just writing down what she what she heard and uh, I just wanted to read you one little ditty that she heard little girls saying they came up to her in the playground this is in April 1980 and she said uh, now they said can we show you something that we made up and they said there's this skipping chant for when we do handstands they said you start off marching you see swinging your arms and then you do the saluting bit then you curtsy and then you do your handstand and this is what they sang I'm a little girl guide dressed in blue these are the actions that I must do salute to the captain curtsy to the Queen and show your knickers to the football team and Iona said that you know, at the time all the, the, the boys playing football they were too busy to notice what was going on <laughs> over there it's kind of interesting isn't it Christina because you have the likes of Iona Opie and Pat Inglesby recording what has gone on in Irish playgrounds in the, in, in the case of Pat and I wonder what do we actually know about Irish kids the amount of time
1: that they spend playing, has it changed at all? There isn't a huge amount of research on play in Ireland. And I mean, at a government level, at a national level, at a policy level, it's just not prioritised at all. Um, We do know, I mean, growing up in Ireland, uh, had a little bit of data around play, but most parents would say that their children play but that doesn't necessarily give you any idea about the quality of it or what they're actually doing. But am I right in saying the government did dip their their toe in in play policy back in, what was it, 2005? 2004, yes. So the National Children's Strategy uh, was published in 2000 and then on the back of that um, was the National Play Policy in 2004 Um, and there were great, really, really great um, ambitious uh, actions within that. So, um, and one of the successes of it now, it did... um, it was successful in that it doubled the amount of playgrounds that we had in the country um, it started in 2006 they introduced the National Play Resource Centre so that was kind of a central um, kind of hub of information about play that would help to kind of um, for, for teachers and parents and carers and whatnot. Um, and that was the funding was cut for that after less than two years and since the play policy there was a review of it done in 2016 and it still hasn't even been published um, And I think part of that is because um, it's the Department of Children and Youth Affairs that are tasked with that. And at the moment, they're very um, focused on First Five, the Early Years Strategy, Um, and of course, there are huge problems within childhood, within early childhood, around child care, around child poverty. Um, Play is kind of seen as a nice to have, not a need to have. So other things are being prioritised. But it's absolutely something that it's more than just the Department of Children and Youth Affairs should be responsible for. It's something that is multi-sectoral. And David, I suppose, you know, we've seen such urbanisation in Ireland
0: Uh, and it's interesting because in many ways it was the promise of the suburbs, you know, the idea of green space Mm -hmm. and yards that kids would have more freedom to roam and to play. But now you have that problem for adults and for parents or guardians that, you know, both stranger danger is on their mind, even though there's very minimal risk of that. But the real risk is cars and the suburbs and the cities in general are are so planned around the car Mm Uh, as as a way that really stops any kind of play from happening.
2: Yeah, um, there's research back, I think it's from the UK, and it, it talked about a thing called the play radius. So it's how far a child roams from their house. And I think back, you know, I think in 1980s in the UK, it was about 10 miles that seven-year-olds were going wow. from their from their house. Um, I think it's about, it's one block one street now so it's pretty much seven metres now yeah yeah. (laughs) it's it's much constrained but you know because there is a genuine fear of danger with increased amount of um, car travel and you know higher density traffic on roads and we have kind of The design or the planning of areas are built around, you know, a very um, commuter centric kind of hubs. And these green spaces tend to be positioned along, you know, close to roads. And they look great when you're driving by in a car, but they're quite far away from where the children actually live.
0: And you talk a bit about risk and play. We have a piece now from Jennifer Cavanagh, School of Health and Human Performance in DCU. She's been researching how children learn to cycle. Have a listen to this.
3: So my research specifically looks at working with preschool children from about two to six years of age, investigating how they learn to cycle, practicing on balance bikes or bikes with stabilizers. So, balance bikes are bikes that have essentially removed pedals. And by doing so, it allows the child to use their feet to run along the floor with the bike. And what this essentially does is it removes the element of pedaling and allows them to first focus on just the balancing and the steering idea of cycling before having to combine all the separate skills together to independently cycle. When learning to cycle, often children will take many, many attempts. When they're learning on their precursors such as balance bikes often they try really risky behaviours such as going really quickly and trying to turn a corner way too quickly that it will never work and they're going to fall over or trying to swerve in between objects and learning at a younger age when the types of bikes like balance bikes are available to you and they fit a younger child is actually quite important because it allows that side of the skill to be mastered. So not just learning to cycle, but learning the awareness of self and what you can and can't do. And allowing the child to do that. Bring them to an environment where they're not near cars on a road, where they're in a park and they're not gonna actually be able to fall into glass or anything per se. And once you provide that environment, don't be worried about them falling over or going too quickly. Children will tend to go inside their own comfort zones. They're not going to go too wild outside that. They're just exploring the skill. They're going to exaggerate the skill first in order to know its limits. And it's important to let them get to those limits.
0: Jennifer Kavanagh there from the School of Health and Human Performance in DCU. David Gall and Christina Duff, um, I wonder what an ideal play environment looks like. I mean, we hear that millennials in particular want to stay in the city after they have kids. So we're going to have to grapple with this in our cityscape and also in the suburban landscape as well. So where do we start? I mean, David, you have said to me before that you hate playgrounds. (laughs) (laughs) So then what?
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, I'll put a little asterisk beside that. Yeah, I (laughs) I, I hate hate going to playgrounds and then looking around and realising that there's not much to play um, in that playground, in that design of that playground. There's no imagination. No, no, they tend to have, most playgrounds tend to have a slide a swing set and not much else you know they're very fixed purpose and you know there's not much room for children to experience there's some really great ones don't get me wrong there's some really excellent ones where kids have a bit of freedom and space but you know for the most part a lot of them tend to be very the same bog standard design So how do you make them less prescriptive? I suppose having Bits of equipment that are not just single purpose, that have a bit of a challenge to them. So, you know, playgrounds that might have balance beams or, um, you know, climbing frames that are accessible to children of different ability levels. So, you know, we have, or most of my experiences, I have a two and a half year old, and when I go to a playground, I see a lot of parents going over to the slide and the, the active part of climbing on the slide is negated by the parent. They pick their child up, they lift them up to the top of the platform, they put them on the top and then, then they say slide. And they slide on the end and they pick them up at the end. Whereas the child doesn't have, actually get to experience the climbing up the steps or if it's monkey bars or whatever way they climb up. And that's the most valuable part of the play that they experience. <laughs> Watch <out> the <laughs>
1: There are um, a number of cities that have kind of implemented these sort of playful installations or playful interventions Um, and they're certainly of benefit. Like they are exciting and they are great to see. And if you have children and you see them interacting with them, it's wonderful. But I mean, we have to be careful to that. There's a lot of the, the problem with cities and with play is that they are car centric and the way cities are planned is for cars. They're not planned for people and they're certainly not planned for children. So there might be a playful installation somewhere, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it is a playful area or a playable area. Um, so we need to have, we need to make it accessible to children. We need to design cities with children in mind. There's a great um, initiative in the USA called Urban 95 from the Bernard Van Leer Foundation. Yeah, so 95 being 95 centimetres, the height of a three-year-old. Okay. Um, so it's about designing cities with a three-year-old in mind because we as adults design in a way that we think sh- it should be fine for children, but we don't really look at it from their perspective.
0: And, and David, you know, for parents and guardians listening who are picking up their kids at six o'clock in the evening and, and they want to do their best by this and, and want to, to do something that's feasible when it comes to play, is there anything you can recommend? I mean, is it down to just getting a cardboard box and
2: well that's a definite <laughs> start you know uh, it's amazing how quickly play can start you know over something so simple and small that you know parents trying to i suppose do something you know encouraging, that's them taking the lead again and it's getting away from from true play so you know facilitating so coming in and watching your child sitting beside them asking oh what are you doing and joining in with them rather than, oh, you should do it like this, or you should do it like that. So sitting down, and it's really important quality time to build relationships with your children because it might be silly, it might be repetitive of you pretending to eat some type of food that your child is trying to spoon into your mouth. But that's really valuable because, you know, you—that's your, your role as a parent to do that, to play, to engage with them. And yes, you'll all, miss
0: it when they're older. You do, yeah, you <laughs> and, will. And I presume buying loads of things isn't part of this. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, about, you know, a towel can be a, a cape for you know Superman or whatever. Yeah. Like you, could, your imagination is where. Uh, for kids anyway where where it is
2: yeah I can I can speak to that at the moment as a <laughs> proud father of a two and a half year old um, he is Avenger mad he has uh, every superhero on his brain and he has every suit courtesy of m- myself and my mum and uh, I am his sidekick so when he is Batman I am Robin I have a towel that I tuck in into my collar and I run around the kitchen just like him saying all these, you know, catchphrases. I think he was Bud's Lightyear year today, actually. So he had his costume on. And, you know, it's just about, I suppose.
1: Imagining things. Imagining. Yeah.
2: Not it does don't need literal. the suit. You don't need the suit. Yeah.
1: And, and you, it's not about the physical things. It's about allowing the time, the space and the permission, I think is a really, really important part. Like the the the, the signals that we give to children by jumping in all the time and telling them how to do things um, to, you know, just stand back and let it happen. Like it shouldn't be complicated for us to facilitate play. And, Christina, we haven't even entered the realm of adult play
0: here, (laughs) but I presume you think that play should never stop.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And I think, like, some of the characteristics of play that I mentioned earlier about, like, it being a means and not an end and not not being afraid to fail, I think they're almost incompatible with what we as adults think we are here to do. Like, uh, for an adult, play might be something, like, you know playing an instrument or like running around or playing sports yes but we feel we have to quantify everything and we have to put measures on it Um, and a lot of the time I mean I know people who play for them might be making art so it might be writing or painting but they've stopped doing that because well I'm like they say say things like well I'm never going to be a painter you know I'm never going to be a novelist they kind of see like well I'm never going to do this professionally as my job so it's not worthwhile doing but really that's where they find their flow that's where they are happiest and that is their play Um, so I think it's just about kind of stopping us ourselves being self-conscious and feeling like we're doing the wrong thing all the time and not being not thinking that we have everything under control and we know everything that's gonna happen.
0: Well if you want to read more about play, you can go to rte.ie forward slash brainstorm. But for now, David Gall and Christina Duff. Thank you both very much. The programme is produced by Kieran O'Byrne and the editor is Jim Carroll. Research is by Louise Denver. Brainstorm is an RTE project in association with University College Cork, NUI Galway, University of Limerick, DCU, TU Dublin, Ulster University, Maynooth University and the Irish Research Council. This programme is available as a podcast from rte.ie brainstorm.